Hello and welcome to Pain in the Dice, because games are fun and also often hard. I'm one of your hosts, Chaz. And I'm another one of your hosts, Terry. And today we are going to be talking about the Exalted Supplement, Heirs to the Shogunate. I know a lot, but a little about Exalted. I am very much in the, I realize what I don't know, and that is vast and makes me want to cry sometimes. So good thing Chaz is here. (laughs) Chaz, what the dink is Heirs to the Shogunate? I'm going to take a step back and kind of give some context for Heirs to the Shogunate. Heirs to the Shogunate is the companion book to the Kickstarter for What Fire Has Wrought, which is the dragon-blooded splat book for Exalted 3rd Edition. So Heirs of the Shogunate ends up being the collection of all of the stuff that was achieved as stretch goals as part of the Dragon-Blooded Kickstarter. And it's it's a big boy. It is. It's 265 pages, and the Dragon-Blooded book is not that much bigger <laughs> than it. <laughs> like It doesn't quite hit Mummy the Resurrection levels of the companion book is bigger than the core rulebook, but it, it gets, certainly gets close in some places. And I think that was a really important lesson that Onyx Path learned uh, in the Exalted 3rd Edition Kickstarter, is that in Exalted 3rd Edition, almost all of the stretch goals went into the core book. They did have a couple of like minor supplements that they, they added after the fact, but like the companion book to that campaign was 39 pages for reference miracles of the solar exalted yes and that was strictly charms right or was it other and stuff yeah that was that was strictly charms but stretch goals included picking antagonists picking artifacts picking martial arts to add to the the game and like all of those should have just gone to the companion book but that wasn't a technology they had at the time mm-hmm. so what fire has wrought giving us heirs of the shogunate is the first time in exalted that we've had that kickstarter companion to book journey now and spoiler i think it's a really solid solid entry in that sense the the one downside is that it took us over a year and a half to get from the, the the core book to the supplement which in some cases looks like it could be frustrating that is true um part of that was the time period where uh they were figuring out the new development cycle mm-hmm. for Exalted, figuring out the new development cycle for Onyx Path as a whole, and ran into both an editing and an art management logjam at mm-hmm. Onyx Path. So my hope is that after Many Faced Strangers, which is the Lunar Companion book, that the core book to companion delay will be brought in significantly. We will see. I hope it is the case that you are right. But as someone who works in insurance professionally, frequently someone will be like, but that was a freak accident. That's not going to happen again. I'm like, that freak accident will not happen, but a freak accident will. And that is why you have insurance. So it it is one of those cases where it's like, yes, this particular set of delays may not occur, but I fully believe in the ability for novel and unforeseen networks of delays to to crop up. So yes, 100%. The proof will be in the delivery. Yes. So I guess to start out, what is an exalt and what is a dragon blooded and what knowledge do we want to presume of our audience? Oh boy, I will give the 10,000 foot view Mm -hmm. of that. Um, And then if people want to learn more, they can go look at our uh, series, The Systematic Understanding of Everything, The Exalted Podcast, where we, we spend 32 episodes going into that in depth. But Exalted is a game where you play characters driven by human motivations with divine power 
in a expansive fantasy setting. The dragon-blooded are the bloodlines of elementally empowered heroes who kind of rule everything at the center of the world and reach out their grasp into what they call the threshold or all of the lands beyond the big central island uh, where their empire is is located. So that's your your 10,000 foot view. But I, I suspect a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Exalted at this point. This is not the episode about which one should learn about the game Exalted. Yes, I, I certainly agree with that. <laughs> but uh, hopefully me knowing vastly less about that will will help fill in some of those holes. And as this is a book and we would like to discuss it, we're just going to start by kind of a chapter by chapter walkthrough. The first section is entitled The Cadet Houses, and they exist on the dynasty's periphery. If the dynasty consists of the, what is it, 10 uh, main houses or 10 great houses, uh, these are those that kind of exist beyond that. They are frequently seeking power as well as stability. They may be families that have been brought in by marrying from one of the outlying provinces, or they may exist in the threshold, the area outside of this core kingdom. And otherwise, they're kind of more stuff. I like them because they are scaled down. It is what I refer to as ponderable. One of the things I like about this book is that for almost every major conflict in the setting, it gives you a little version of that conflict. I don't know if it's intentional, but that's kind of how I parsed it. Like when we get to Prasad, Prasad is like a little blessed isle kind of, <laughs> and they're dealing with the issues of expansion and maintaining it and a, and a state religion and so on. And the cadet houses are kind of that little thing. Chaz, do you want to walk us through the, the cadet houses? Yes, we get a good number of cadet houses in a full form write up uh, the same way we got the great houses in What Fire Has Wrought. And then a couple more that are just like, here's some more cadet houses. And, and I thought all of that was great. The first up, we had House Ferem, uh, which is the dragon-blooded family that once ruled Great Chirac. They are a failed Lukshai in that they once were a power to rival the realm and the threshold, but given the circumstances of their history, fell into the realm's grasp and so became a mere cadet house and servants of the realm. So they have kind of an independent streak and a yearning for past glories. And with the time of tumult of the core exalted setting, I think it gives you a really cool campaign seed, not just by themselves, but if you look at the content that's presented in the realm about Chirac and the surrounding area, it gives you a lot to play with where you could play a whole like, let's reunite great Chirac and, and build a new kingdom out here. Where is Chirac located? Uh, Chirac is in the northeast. Okay, thank you. One of my criticisms of this book is, give me a damn map! <laughs> House Nisar is a new one. Uh, they are the governors of Wujan, which is one of the new setting locations in the West in 3rd edition. And they have strong criminal ties and an independent streak. Uh, they could be of value to House Pelops in the War for the West, which gets some detail later in the book. I think they're neat. Uh, one of the things they do that I found kind of interesting is that they are very much uh, spreading out their bets. They are intermarrying among a number of other houses in an attempt to avoid being uh, subsumed. And also it highlights the different origins of the houses. Like from my understanding, the 10 great houses are all people that like boinked the Scarlet Empress. Or her children. Yes, or her children. Yes. And in this case, it's like, hey, they govern Wujian and they're risen from street gangs. 
where it is kind of like the dynasty is willing to deal with any centralized figure of authority. They really don't care where it comes from, with the exception that they don't want to be literally dealing with demons. That seems to be pretty well the only explicit no-no that they have. We don't deal with the demon, we don't deal with the dead, and uh, you can't obviously smell like the fair folk. But otherwise, it's like if it is born of a trade empire, if it is like some weird incestuous family relationship, if it's glorified street gangs, if it's gunslingers, sure, whoever's in charge who will give us money, we will work with them. Yep. It is a very real politique look at the setting um, that I think is better highlighted in third edition than past editions. And speaking of strange sources of power, you have House Simendor, which is a, a collection of familial sorcerers engaged in constant one-upmanship with a house built on decadence and pride, uh, named after the threshold lord who swore allegiance to the empire. It is composed of sorcerer princes that are constantly um, changing position ranked by their accomplishment. They get a whole set of shaping rituals, which is uh, the way in which you gain uh, magic juice uh, within the setting. They control Chalan's key port and very much value knowledge. They have a certain disdain for the Immaculate Order, and based on the degree to which they practice sorcery, I imagine the Immaculate Order has a disdain for them. I appreciated that like an actual source of wealth is indicated, because they're like, they own an Orichalcum mine, and I'm like, woo! Um, and it does a thing that Exalted is very good at, and that for each of these houses, it kind of says, this is where they are. This is where their money comes from. This is why they could become great or were great or what they're shooting for. Also, here are some badass people that you can interact with. Also, if they have a, any sort of internal organization, this is what it would look like. In this case, they they outline that, the, the leaden table that, uh, that guides the peerless sorcerer queen that leads the, uh, the cadet house. And I thought it was an interesting case of, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different ways a house can come up and here's the magic you want the other and and terry mentioned this one of the other neat things is that this book gives us a number of new sorceress initiations with shaping rituals we now have more shaping rituals than we have spells (laughs) that's not not true listed in third edition yes really i think so oh Um, shaping rituals not initiations every initiation has three shaping rituals yes yeah that might be true Okay. <laughs> okay. I've only counted that we have 20 spells so far between what fire has wrought and the core book. Is there another book that has it? Many guess- Face Strangers has some as well, but also has more initiations. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you, you might be right there. We got a lot of juice. Future Chaz here. I just said Many Face Strangers, but of course mean Fangs at the Gate, the lunar book. And back to your episode. The final of the houses to get a full write-up is House UA, which connects into the new setting in the southwest around Xiaoyun, which was one of the developers' kind of home campaign settings that has been introduced into the setting. And so it's nice to build on what's there without without really drastically changing the presentation from the realm, but adding like, oh, and here's another neighbor, someone who's playing in the same space. So there are Mariner Lords who are enmeshed in the local power structures. I also like that there was an adventure seed on page 24 about the uh, Giarin insurgency. And I'm like, I know how that one winds up. Uh, (laughs) Forgetting that your campaign is not necessarily canon, but it is for me. We also get some references to other houses. House Blacklass, which is interesting because their leadership is not inherited. But each time one of the 10 members of it dies, uh, they go out and find a replacement. 
uh, House Kenzo, who remains devoted to the Empress, and House Aramon, who rules Sarkarn and is dominated by thorns, and just gives you a bunch of ideas. Uh, did anything pique your interest particularly among these houses? I really like House Nassar because I like the Wujan setting, and I think they're in a really interesting place in terms of being able to do things in general. And I, I liked uh, House Semendar. Um, I like the kind of overall tyrannical power that exists in the South as a setting element. And I think they add a nice addition to that in showing the realm in a different light in the South, where most of the locations are locally managed and paid to the realm, where this is directly controlled by by this house. Overall, I really like what the cadet houses offer from a, a play option, because it lets you play a realm PC like a dragon-blooded from the realm, who is not necessarily from one of the great houses. You can kind of have this Mm insider-outsider perspective to the way things are. And the variety that they present here, um, along with the examples they give you in What Fire Has Wrought, give you a lot of possible examples for houses, and kind of set the upper and lower scale for what a, a cadet house looks like, with House Ferem, which has like 100 dragon-blooded members, and House Black Glass, which has 10. Yeah, it, it, one of the things I run into in games is frequently I will have a character concept, and that character concept will be tied to a group where kind of every variant is spoken for. Like, I could see the case where you want to play a dragon-blooded, but you're like, well, I don't want to play an outcast, and I don't want to play a dynast. Is there another option? And now the answer is yes. If you want to set up shop in a weird region that still has some sort of tie to the empire, but is not one of the politicking great houses, that is there, and I appreciate that option existing. The next part of the chapter goes over uh, secondary education, where we get a review of the main places of education within the setting. I found this to be useful because it explained a bunch of things. There are a bunch of kind of base options presented in the game. For instance, the House of Bells is the realm's uh, premier military academy. Uh, The Spiral Academy trains people in diplomacy, administration, and economics. The Cloister of Wisdom is for immaculate monks. Uh, The Heptagram teaches sorcery, artifice, geomancy, and other esoteric arts. And Pesiap's Stair is a military academy almost exclusively for lost eggs who've chosen to serve the Empress and the Legions. Chaz, what's a lost egg? Lost eggs are dragon-blooded born outside of the realm who exalt and then are are brought into the realm, but not by one of the great houses. The Empress kind of kept these outcast dragon-blooded as basically her, her personal agents mm-hmm. because they don't have house loyalties. She can count on them to be loyal to no one but her. And so when young dragon-blooded especially are brought into the realm, they're given the choice of the coin where they serve in the legions and go to Pesiap Stair for their education, or the razor where they they join the Immaculate Order and shave their heads to become a monk. Terry gave a great overview of the five major schools. This is something that's been in Exalted since first edition. I really like the details that are presented here. They, They really take a, if you're going to be setting a game in one of these schools, which is one of the kind of traditional dragon blooded play styles of playing a secondary school game. This gives you story hooks, characters, ideas about what the curriculum looks like that would be helpful to run that game. My complaint is that because of the way the material was added as a stretch goal, it is separated from the other information about the schools. So to get the full picture of each of the schools, you need to look at what fire has wrought 
which talks about each of them, the realm, which talks about the place where each of them is located and how they fit into that place, and Heirs to the Shogunate, which gives you some teachers, some students, uh, a little bit more about the curriculum, and some Starhawks. This is really a case where the book is an extension of the other material, not necessarily a standalone piece. Yeah, that was my criticism. As someone who doesn't have encyclopedic knowledge of the setting, the fact that I would have to go through the core book, The Realm, What Fire Has Wrought, and this book to find some things, it was not uncommon that I would just Google it and thirdexalt.wikia would, would be my answer or some page on Obsidian Portal. And I'm like, I hope this guy's canon. And then uh, <laughs> <laughs> go from there. Uh, there were a few cases where I'm like, this is too much detail. This is from a home game. But um, it, at least for me, some of, the, some of the highlights I very much enjoyed was they make mention that at the Spiral Academy, there is a hidden curriculum that you more or less need to break your way into, which I thought was a really neat idea. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the, the War College at the House of Bells all education is collective, which makes it hard to have certain types of rivalries where you're like, I really want to break this person's leg. They're being a jackass, but we very much need them for a drill formation tomorrow. So uh, how can I make their life miserable without having all of us fail? As I've been thinking about running a secondary school game uh, or writing one for the Storyteller's Vault, the, the House of Bells is kind of my my go-to choice because it, it gives you that squad. Mm-hmm. Because you you train with a uh, a fang essentially, so there are fi- five dragon blooded who train together and pass together or fail together, and so you can have the internal rivalries within your group, and then also external rivalries with other groups, which can get a lot more violent, especially because they pit fangs against each other in extended training exercises. I like the Dark Harry Potter game that comes out of the heptagram, where the first-year students are known as sacrifices about half-die or half-fail. I think that's a little bit too brutal, like the no- running the numbers on that, that doesn't work out long-term, but also that they don't trust students with privacy, and that that kind of makes perfect sense. They mention that, that Regarum Bagwe is the founder of the heptagram and offers grueling trick training, but also is a master of the Aria of Emptiness, which pulls sorcery out of the human voice. Uh, keep creation weird. And this book does that in a couple of cases that I really liked. But it would probably be either that or the Spiral Academy would would be my go-to. They're all good. Yeah. I, I think the, the Cloister of Wisdom gives a very good setting for that. This is what you believe, but this is what happens to your beliefs when it goes out in the world. And uh, I certainly like games of that notion. And, and also like the little thing where it's like Repentant Blossom of Winter has been running the Cloister of Wisdom for 11 decades. And that's what happens when you have dragon blooded that run things. And like in that context, the difference in view for the dynasts versus mortals, I think is an interesting contrast. And I'm curious if that is discussed at more at length anywhere. I don't think so. Yep. <laughs> Chapter two uh, takes a deeper look at Lukshai. Uh, again, building on material that we get in What Fire Has Wrought, it gives a detailed look at the great Gentis, or Gentis? Gentis. Gentis. Mm-hmm. It gives a detailed look at the great Gentis, which are the dragon-blooded families of Lukshai, and it does it in the style that the great houses are presented in What Fire Has Wrought. And I, I like this because it, it kind of brings them up to the level um, of of the great houses. But and this is this is kind of always what happens with Lukshai is that I think they're cool, and then like I don't remember any of them. And I, yeah. I always kind of forget how detailed Lukshai politics gets. So 
it definitely gives you all of the material that you need to play a look shy game. Like you, you get the same depth of content that you do for the realm for this one city. And so that's pretty cool, but it's not as iconic as the, the great houses are. Yeah, the TLDR on Lukshai is it considers itself to be the, the last bastion of the Shogunate, the era of rule before the Scarlet Empress took control of things. It is kind of this uh, city-state where the dragon-blooded of the Seventh Legion still follow the last orders that they were given that to protect the Confederation of Rivers and the, uh, the River Province until the Shogunate returns. I like this because to me, it felt like a reference to Shia Islam, where, where a group is awaiting the return of the Hidden East mom, which Chaz promised me was not the case, but hey, I'm going to run with it. I'd love it. Yeah, that you have the set of, I don't want to say archaic practices, but very ancient practices that you can see that the realm and the Lukshai practice may be similar, but you can tell that they've kind of diverged over time, even if at base they start in in very similar places. Each of the, the gentes kind of has a different political outlook. So one of the key questions of Lukshai is, do we want to turn inward? Do we want to establish peace more aggressively in this area? Do we want to go out and fight threats that we feel face the river province? Do we want to double down on our religion or do we want to do something else? So this chapter to me was the idea that there are look shy political factions has been brought up in other books, but here it said, we're going to put a face to them. And in addition to that, you also have an area with an unusually high density of dragon-blooded and an exceptional number of first-age artifacts. So the opening fiction is about a skyship essentially breaking down. And the thing I very much liked about that fiction is it gave me a district description of what a conversation about Magitech could look like in-game without it turning into Star Trek Technobabble. This is exalted Technobabble. And even if they get to the same place, the flavor was important to me in just saying uh, the the little key things that tell you you're in a different place and the setting is not like other fantasy settings that you're used to dealing with. In addition to the Gentis, we get a look at the Seventh Legion, um, their operational practices, what military forces they have available. And then uh, what ends up being some addition finagling, where they talk about Lukshai's First Age artifacts and now the propaganda around them. In the past, Lukshai has not been powerful just because of its dragon-blooded, but also because of its cache of First Age weapons and their ability to continue to maintain and build Magitek, which was unique around creation. And 3rd edition dials Magitek way down compared to 2nd edition, but with Magitek being so core to Lukshai's image, how do they thread that needle? And the answer is propaganda, that Lukshai has had this cache of first age uh, artifacts, but it is dwindling. They're, they're kind of on their last supplies, but they continue to put out propaganda about how powerful their cache of weapons is. And that's it, kind it's, it's not quite a paper tiger because it is still a powerful asset that they have, but it's an asset that they really don't want to spend because of its limited availability. And I I did like that aspect of it. One of the tensions I always have with that is, do we ever get systems on how wonders, sorry, mage term, on how artifacts like break 
down over time? Is that actually like matched within the game? Because the, the sense I always got was artifacts just kind of always work. Uh, first age artifacts do have systems for breaking down. Okay, cool. Because uh, uh, War Striders especially, but, but things like Siege Engines and other stuff uh, do have rules where they require maintenance, which requires a lot of skills and is hard. And if it's not done, they, they slowly break down. Yeah, because one of the things that always got me is, from what I understand, the difference between in power between the Dragonblooded and the Solar has dropped between editions, where uh, a Solar is no longer the obvious categorical peer in every conceivable way to a Dragonblooded of equivalent experience. Is that the case? Yeah. So the idea that the Dragonblooded can't maintain this stuff, even with the density that they have here, I wanted a little bit more information on why not. And and I have a few theories that I could have. Like, for instance, um, this is actually a bad example because we have charms that literally let you do this. If you have access to the maintenance manual and it's literally in a language that you don't read, you won't be able to necessarily figure it out. Or it could be one of this, those things where you have so few examples of a given artifact that you're not able to maintain it uh, reasonably because you don't have enough like spare parts to practice on and you need this entire supply chain to make it go. I'll take weird things that Terry gets caught up on for 600, Chaz. So, so this is one that actually does uh, play out in the rules um, nice. in terms of how it how it works. Because the crafting numbers are so high, the bigger dice pools that solars can max out on and the charms that add efficiency or let them push further through a project are going to make the difference between being able to make a war strider or not. Hmm. And then some of it is represented by just like the loss of techniques and infrastructure to support it. So you can you can do things like draw on a, a workshop to let you get an additional role, but those first age factory workshops no longer exist. And so all of these things kind of compound to make building and maintaining first age artifact more difficult. Another thing that they cover is Lukshai and sorcery, including another sorceress initiation for the Lukshai Academy of Sorcery. Again, this is neat. It expands the op playable options. Uh, it kind of gives you that last piece you need to, to uh, play a Lukshai game. They talk about playing a Lukshai game with some storyteller advice, uh, which is nice because the core books in 3rd edition are missing storyteller advice. And this book kind of steps in to, to give you some of that content. Thoughts on uh, the Lukshai chapter? The Lukshai chapter, the Prasad chapter, and the kind of the rest of the other dragon-blooded groups, I felt like the cadet houses was here's how to play a cadet house, and most of the other chapters were here's how to play a blank NPC. Which is, I, I thought was good, where it was one of those things where, yes, you can use this to run a Lookshy game. If I were going to run an entire Lookshy game, I would probably want more information, which I assume is available in previous editions. But this is more than enough that if you want to introduce Lookshy as a political actor within your game, or maybe one of your characters has a Lookshy background, it is, it is more than enough and it is ample. And it gives another view on what state power could look like, the importance of propaganda, the importance of uh, military ferocity that to some extent uh, Lukshai feels like the Prussia of the exalted setting where you have this disproportionate military heavy hitter compared to everyone else. And that is kind of the foundation. I also like the internal question of the politics that they have, especially if you want to play a civil war game, you now have this very powerful piece on the board that has different motives than everyone else. And I think this gives you all the information you need to play out the implications and ramifications of that. Definitely. Yeah, and to your point, yes, again, this this requires information from elsewhere. Both prior editions gave lengthy uh, explorations of Lukshai and their place in the threshold, so you can go back to first and second edition. The caveat 
to that is when drawing on that material, remember that 3rd edition asks you to think more locally. So Lukshai should not be interacting with Harborhead and White Wall. They should be interacting with Thorns and Nexus and their neighbors, not places on the other side of the world. The next section is on the Empire of Prasad, which is located towards the southeast. It is... Um... Uh, distant from kind of the core areas that we know of creation. It operates from the capital city of Kamthahar, and they seek to expand and ultimately claim the entire Dreaming Sea region, which is an area that is added to the map in third edition. And kind of the overwhelming feel is a land of wonder. I would use the term exotic if that term weren't so weighed down. Problematic? Yeah, it is a mundane kind of different, I, I will put it. It is just a, a different set of ways of doing it. The area is ruled by the uh, the dragons, and they have this kind of interesting combination of the immaculate philosophy plus in, uh, local faiths called the pure way, where the dragon-blooded are spiritually enlightened and deserving of prayer and obedience by mortals, and they believe that dragon-blooded, uh, much like the Immaculate Philosophy, by leading a good life, you can be uh, reincarnated into something better. One of the key differences, though, is that it holds that the dragon-blooded and local gods are kind of on the same footing, which the local gods do not enjoy in most cases. But one of the problems with uh, human weapons designed to kill gods is if you disagree with them too much, they have the ability to quote Monica Specca to put on their ass-kicking boots of ass-kicking and remind you of... Uh, of everyone's respective place within the hierarchy of the pure way. It is heavily inflected by uh, Central Asian and Near East cultures in what I thought was a kind of an interesting way. They talk about wonders a lot. I feel like that wasn't entirely well filled in, but it gives you information about the three main groups. They kind of have these uh, two key houses that are continually intermarrying and trading leadership back and forth, as well as a religious group that kind of just maintains order uh, and talks about the ebbing and flowing of power between them and some of the current problems beseeching them, such as the fact that, I, I, is it their leader or the heir to the leader is missing? The heir to the leader is missing. Uh, and this is a kind of uh, dynastic crisis that has not occurred for them before, or at least not previously mentioned. Prasad is another area where you'll have to go and, and look at the other materials. So the realm presents a bunch on Prasad itself. But the Dreaming Sea region as a whole is still softer in terms of the definitions that are out there. We're really waiting for Across the Eight Directions to fill in the rest of the Dreaming Sea, which will help give Prasad its context. The families that, that Terry mentioned are Clan Barano and Clan Ofris, who were once great houses of the realm, but traveled far here and broke away uh, to become independent rulers of their own little empire, and they do send tribute gifts back to the realm periodically to, to maintain a, a tacit tie, but it's so far away that it's that it's almost irrelevant. And then the third, which was added in Heirs of the Shogunate, is Clan Akatha, who were the kind of former divinely empowered families that ruled Prasad before the coming of the Dragonblooded and are seen as near peers to the Dragonblooded. Uh, and seeing kind of what Prasad would have looked like in the past through that perspective, as well as connecting it to the local spirit courts and gods, creating some continuity uh, with local tradition, I thought was, was interesting to, again, show a different way that the Dragonblooded can be embedded in a society. 
Again, we get a storyteller section talking about Prasad being on the brink of disaster, uh, talking about how you can play politics, conquest, adventure, exploration. The Dreaming Sea kind of gives you exalted in microcosm, and that is kind of played out here in the storyteller section as well. The the thing I found interesting was I don't feel as if it provided enough evidence to talk about the empire on the brink of disaster portion that is brought up. When it mentioned that in the storytelling section, that kind of caught me by surprise. If anything, it felt like the opposite. So yeah, there is a problem with coming up with an heir, but I'm pretty sure you can like figure that out. <laughs> we didn't get the idea that there is kind of this nest of internecine conflict in the same way that we do have among the 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 great houses and the obvious powder keg which is the succession for the empress also there wasn't much information given about the ways in which this is a strained empire so like the the scarlet dynasty is presented as requiring conquest to maintain resources where here it was the opposite the continuous conquest is requiring resources and that just kind of seemed weird to me because you're like okay you're running out of resources stop expanding as opposed to <laughs> if the great houses stop seizing things, they're kind of boned. So it is, uh, I, I do not feel the conflicts as put together were quite as weighty as they wanted, but I want that. I Pardon me. I am fine with that. I am okay having an area that is a little less less of a tinderbox or powder keg. So I, I was okay that, that the setting did not suggest itself as being as volatile as what the book was saying. Chapter four, Terry, you said, keep creation weird and the forest witches do just that. Uh, they're kind of the grade A example for doing just that. Yeah, there is a weird lake out there somewhere that because a absolutely batshit click crazy solar killed a lunar near this lake, the area got real weird. I, I'm not quite sure of a better way to put it. There is this uh, there is this lake that those who come in contact with it kind of are able to immerse themselves in a perpetual illusion, which uh, conceals all imperfection. And the kind of forest spirit that rules over it demands periodic tribute of things to be thrown into it for it to consume. The notable thing about it is once you are connected to the, uh, the Sea of Mind, if you die, you persist within the Sea of Mind. Uh, the problem is the amount of essence or magic or whatever required to maintain these dead people requires continuous offerings. Uh, there is also the potential for gaining great power by giving up certain portions of yourself to it. The Sea of Mind and those around it are presented as kind of having a political agenda driven by the Blood and Stone Sutras that indicate that they wish to more or less control creation. There is the, this strange mist, which is kind of this cryptic manifestation of it, and those who give of themselves uh, can become one of the Newman, and they're looking ultimately for 77 sacrifices to unleash the power of it. One of the other interesting things is once you have in some way given yourself over, there is a group called the Company of Thrones, which has gained the ability to selectively reincarnate. So they are trying to subvert nearby kingdoms by reincarnating as dynastic members, dynast lowercase d in this case. There's this imaginary town, or a town that exists only within the of mine, absolutely eternal, and there are those who choose to protect the borders or raid on what is nearby and near areas of strong essence. The power of the sea of mind is very much diminished, so they tend not to deal with other manses and places of geomantic potential. I thought it was weird and interesting. To me, this was a commentary on the games of divinity and how crippling vision and pleasure can kind of be. I thought it was going to be a more interesting kind of weird. I don't know how you would play this, but some people are quite fond of it. And when people are like, oh, it's like the Matrix, I was, I think, expecting a little bit more. Um, but it's an interesting idea. And boy, howdy, is it weird. 
I think this chapter is also notable in that it gives systems for all of the weird forest witches stuff, which is very playable. Mm -hmm. I think unlike previous editions where it was just kind of weird, you've got very concrete ways to play each of these things. The Sea of Mind is represented by a merit. Uh, The walking effigies where the dead can exit Asaluth Eternal are just an artifact, and then you get to play as a weird artifact buddy to the the rest of the team, and maintain some of your weird exalted powers because you are kept alive, or your essence is kept alive through the Sea of Mind. The Numina is a merit and a transformation. It's a little bit more complicated than some of the other options, but you can play a character like that with the rules that present here. So I, I think it makes it uh, very accessible in a way that I don't recall the forest witches being in previous editions. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of a threat they're supposed to be. I think they give an interesting alternative to some of the things that you could run into. I, I would have liked more kind of visual description. I feel like a lot of it was was somewhat vague, but yeah, it's here. I think they make a a, a good local threat. Yeah, they're not a creation spanning threat, but they're definitely a threat uh, that you could run into out here. Mm-hmm. Or you could play a character who is tied to them in some way. The next section is on the Outcasts, Chapter 5, and it covers a bunch. Uh, my favorite was the Cult of the Violet Fang, which is a fey touch lineage from a long-forgotten war during the Shogunate era who feel a pull to go on a pilgrimage to get boons from the Parliament Amethystine, which is one of the fey courts, that there is strong social pressure to go on this. If you are part of the line, you uh, need to go through a number of environmental hazards and kind of a metaphor for an internal journey. You visit the court. A shine is taken to you by one of the members of the court who will in some way grant a boon for you. My biggest problem was that the section opened with a thing where, like, this is a way to explore horror. And then the rest of the section was, this involves imagination. So it seems like the authors are like, this is weird and imaginative. That's terrifying or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, it, it wasn't quite some Invisible Sun bullshit, but it was real close. This felt like a baby version of the, what is it, the Trial of the Calls, where you go through the various things? Yes. It felt like a baby version of that. I thought this was fascinating and interesting, and I thought it was really cool. I kind of struggled with the Cult of the Violet Fang in terms of how do I bring them into a game that is mm-hmm. anything other than the Cult of the Violet Fang. That is just a, a I usually don't focus on one little area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't call to me in the same way. Uh, the other two groups that get large write-ups are the, the Grass Spiders, who are a dragon-blooded assassin clan who use their work uh, to inspire artistic expression as assassins. And they seeded a possible feud or front with the White Veil Society and the Grass Spiders, which I think is delightful because I I like the White Veil Society as an organization that doesn't exist, where everything about them is just implied rather than uh, actually stated. It gives an organization that is very open to uh, storyteller use. The, The other ones, and the ones that are really my favorite in here, are Heaven's Dragons, which are the dragon-blooded of Yushan. Um, they work for the gods and sidereals. They have a low status within heaven, but it kind of makes them outside agents who are not locked into the same games of power and politics that, that gods and sidereals uh, would be. And it gives you a cool way to play a dragon-blooded as part of a sidereal game. I, I, I like things that set up cross-splat play. And then the chapter expands information for the Wanasin, the Reverend Whisper, and uh, introduces other outcasts of note. Uh, the Wanasin and Reverend Whisper got write-ups in What Fire Has Wrought, and so this expands them to kind of bring them up to the same level as 
other groups that that get their scions of note. So it completes the content in what Fire has wrought. And then we get a little bit about running all outcast games. I like the groups. They gave a bunch of interesting options. And I think the the powerful part about it is outcast to me is very much a term that the realm uses for everyone else. Unto these groups, they think what they're doing is perfectly reasonable. Uh, n- none of them feel diminished or cast out necessarily for it. They may have a sense of bitterness, but it talks about, hey, you don't have the dynasty to call on, which makes perfect sense. Uh, Heaven's Dragons, I think, was an interesting peek into the difficulties of being a, a, a mortal or a human in Yushan. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting 3rd Edition's view of Yushan, because the little glimpses that we've got uh, have been excellent. The summary I will have comparing the dynastic versus outcasts is the outcasts are about the importance of family, where the dynasts are about the importance of family. <laughs> this is very true chapter six is where we make the flip from setting material to mechanics uh, and chapter six gives you more dragon blooded charms including the backer charms from the kickstarter miracles of the solar exalted included like a little design notes for each charm which isn't present here mm-hmm. and and I, I i liked those design notes when they were there but it's word count that doesn't really add value to the game as much as peak interest, so I understand dropping it going forward. This really feels like an extension of the What Fire Has Wrought model for Dragonblooded Charms, of letting you have elements outside their traditional association and figuring out how that element would be expressed through each ability. And it, it included a lot of charms that I thought would inspire creative use. Terry, did you have any particular charms that jumped out at you? <gasps> Growth and venison propagation is absolutely ridiculous, giving you readily access to levels of resources above five. Savile to sale technique is cool, causing objects to get caught in your anima banner. Moon and earth marriage is very cute at the beginning. We got an uh, ultimate thing that kind of further evidences that lore nearly means nothing. Heart conquering prowess, you hit someone so hard you like that you. Impeccable purity, levation, you bait so hard people like you. And supreme dragon general's presence, you wore so good people like you. That was a rapid fire version. Um, there's a handful that I really liked as well. Five Dragon Arsenal lets you reduce the attunement cost for additional artifacts. Moon and Earth Marriage, like you said, is, is great. It lets you create a dragon blooded lunar bond instead of just a solar lunar bond. So it again expands cross splat play in an interesting way. Thousandfold Tempest Strike strikes everybody nearby with lightning. Who doesn't <laughs> like that? Um, and Dragon's Edge Hatched lets you make an elemental. And, and that's fun. Yep, there's a lot of charms. There's a lot of charms. That's a good summary for Exalted. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, and they're not all in the same place, so so have fun with that. Uh, some of the backer charms were remarkably detailed. Other ones you're like, okay, I can see where this probably came up in your game. So <laughs> that little part of it was kind of neat. Uh, Section 7 is entitled Heirlooms of Power and is a whole bunch of artifacts. And I don't have a lot of context for these. I hate evocations. They just keep going and having to unironically read something like the Fivefold Dragon's Grasp about a pair of Smash Fists, because Smash Fists is a thing in this setting, is nice. Uh, I think my favorite one was either the uh, the Conquering Tide, which is not just a boat, but like a boat of justice. <laughs> where where you slowly have the, where it starts like ah you can find injustice and then towards the higher level of evocations you basically become like a wandering tribunal like this judge jury and executioner thing the uh the last thing which was kind of this mystery orb that makes it way easier for you to make up bullshit about the the setting i'm like nice 
some of the descriptions of the artifacts to me were too long, but I mean, if you're going to make it something that is the object of an entire adventure, all that information is there. Like Majestic Nightmare Visage, story. It was just like plot, where the mask kind of became its own person on visitation to the Fey Court, and now the mask has an agenda of its own, which I liked. How about you? Giving it that greater context, this introduces some artifact types that have been present in past versions of Exalted that haven't seen, haven't been seen in 3rd edition yet. And so Conquering Tide is kind of our first artifact ship that gets a full write-up, uh, so that's that's pretty cool. I really like the Blaze Rider, which is a red jade windblade, uh, which is pictured in the chapter opening art as being like a sword that you ride like a flying skateboard. And that that is some exalted bullshit, if there ever was. You know, in a way that I enjoy. You mentioned Fivefold Dragon's Grasp, these jade smash fists that kind of play with the cycle of elements. The cycle of elements was something they thought about having as a rule for the way that the dragon-blooded could use their charms and auras, but then they decided it was too complicated, and it's kind of nice to see that reimagined in just an artifact. And then the chapter closes with a look at Gunzosha armor, uh, which is kind of the first real look at Magitech beyond the war striders that we got in Arms of the Chosen, we get some common powers of Gunzosha armor and one example Gunzosha armor. So Gunzosha armor is the artifact power armor that is mainly found in Lukshai that cannot just be worn by the Exalted, but can be given to a mortal who can then use it. And it takes years of a mortal's life uh, as they wield it, but it lets them kind of fight on the battlefield in a way that should let them aid uh, or, or support the Exalted. You uh, you upgrade a mortal from Mook to mini-boss. So. <laughs> Chapter 8, Blood of the Dragons, just goes over a bunch of characters. I had no concept of who these people were at all. But hey, that's why you read things. I, I think the uh, the things that kind of jumped out at me is we got, we got a character sheet for Regara. Um, and I think one of the, the coolest things that I hadn't realized that any reasonable person probably would have is it makes mention to the fact that is attended by his exalted grandchildren and great grandchildren. And it's not uncommon for one or more of his hearthmates to be visiting at any given time, who is an experienced dragon blooded of comparable power. I, I think in a lot of books, you kind of treat other characters as like a monster manual of bad guys to take down. But it is very quick to say, hey, this person is powerful enough that they probably have a retinue of 70 people wherever they go. This person essentially has a tiny army that moves with them, considering the power level of their retinue, which I very much liked. The long list of intimacies I found useful because as someone who's new to the system, I'm like, hey, what should intimacies look like? It gave you a bunch. Um, but the other thing is it did kind of treat it to me as a monster manual. You had a lot of offensive and defensive charms and occasionally you'd be like, oh yeah, they have this social charm. Where to me, if this person really rose to power, I feel like that social and bureaucratic charm set would be really built out more. But that may just be me uh, missing the setting. It seemed like a variety of people, all of them thin or attractive. And one of them is a guy with ab-revealing armor, which I appreciated because Exalted has himbos and we should be comfortable with that. 
I also really liked the write-up of Regara. Uh, House Regara was kind of one of them that, that didn't matter to me in prior editions, and third edition made the house interesting, has made Regara himself interesting. Like, House Regara is one of my favorites in third edition. I think each character gives you some plot hooks that can either be used as, like, an example character or someone that your characters could meet. It gives write-ups for all of the new signature characters, and also uh, goes beyond just the realm in that you get some Lukshai characters, you get a couple of the Forest Witches, uh, and you get some uh, outcast characters. My biggest complaint for the chapter is that the art uh, is too white. Exalted is supposed to be a setting where most characters are not white, and even in cases where the skin tone is not necessarily white, the features look white, and it's something that I think Exalted could do better at, is taking the representation that's written into the setting and carrying it through to the art more consistently. Yeah, I wonder if any of that was a byproduct of being like, hey, at this backer level, you can submit art to be one of the characters, and they had like left five or six blanks for that, and they all happen to be white people or something like that. I, I'm trying to figure out a way to be more generous. But yeah, uh, Exalted So White was kind of a feeling. I mean, Regara is downright gray, so that's that's good. We have an equal number of black people and obviously gray-skinned people. That seems like a bad thing. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> it's like when you read like a, a, a Green Lantern comic and you're like, there's as many people of color as there are literally people of different colors in this. You're like, maybe we work on that. <laughs> Yeah. Chapter 9, The Center Cannot Hold, uh, gives you advice for running uh, the Realm War for the Throne. This is kind of the big threat that's set up within the realm of devolving into civil war as the, the houses vie for power. And this is the chapter that gives you that. What it does is it talks about it as a storyteller chapter. So rather than saying, this is the advancement of things that is going to happen, it gives you possibilities rather than a meta plot. So it tells you how you could include the PCs, it gives you potential flashpoints, it talks about the possible contenders for the throne, uh, ranked by likelihood, and then it gives you some scenarios for how the war could play out. The one passage I read that dominated everything I read after was a note towards the end that said, oh, by the way, any civil war, even if it is effectively bloodless, is likely going to result in years of hunger and starvation. And that just made the entire setting much darker for me in a way I haven't fully been able to expunge since reading it. Like, it is a setting that when I talk to people about their games, it is generally about melodramatic joviality, that periodically there are stakes or things that get dark, but it is not a overriding aspect of their games. But reading through the Civil War section and that note at the end, it is now inescapable to me. Chaz, you're much more dialed into the community. How many people run Civil War games? I don't know, honestly. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. No idea. <laughs> it, it does a good job of mentioning other things like, hey, by the way, the Civil Pact may activate. And just the sheer amount of chaos that would come out of Civil War just seems absolutely crippling to run for a storyteller. So I don't know if it's one of those things where people never actually do it because it would just be too hard because it would just be too complex. So I think there's two approaches to that. Everything that I've heard about has made the conflict pretty straightforward. They they take their handful of key players and make their moves, and like that's how it, it works out. Mm -hmm. Third edition, I think, has done a really good job 
between what fire has wrought, giving you a detailed look at the great houses, the realm, giving you a really detailed look at like the assets all over the realm itself and the way it all works. And now here in the War for the Throne, the, the kind of some of the complexities of it. And I am really excited about the possibility of running a giant complex civil war campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm just not sure how to do it exactly. So I yeah. like I have lots of ideas and there's so they they give you all of the pieces and it would be a lot of work I think to really do it justice. My advice to storytellers would be to kind of actually go back to that pick one thing and let it play out. You don't have to to have everything else going on in the war to have the little zoomed in spot of what your characters are doing unless you want to scale up to like let's actually look at the war as a whole and play it out. And I think that is a a different kind of game where you're going to need a a different approach to running and organizing it. The other thing I thought was theoretically useful is it does give some advice on other ways in which the conflict could wind down. Like it makes uh, mention that the 10,000 scales could seize power or the voice of peace could become the new empress, or it could be split into two empires and having a game where the empress disappeared a century ago and you've already gotten through that unpleasantness i think allows you to have a different but similar exalted without having to rework everything so the the different ways that that could play out as well as like little reminders to be like hey once the civil war is declared someone is going to claim to be the empress and everyone's going to know that person is wrong but is it a useful political pawn because the empress is generally loved by the peasantry and if someone were to have the sorceress power to make it seem legit as well as the political power to make everyone else go along with it that to me is a fascinating game how do we maintain the charade of the scarlet empress having returned to the throne definitely the second half of the chapter uh, is the war in the west which outlines uh, house pelops bid to build a western protectorate this is pulling in details from another home game of one of the writers where they explored this possible outcome for the realm civil war with house pelops seizing control of the western islands it gives us a bunch more setting information for the islands of the neck talks about how the other powers of the west may get involved in such a campaign and makes this again another playable scenario expanding the setting and expanding the idea of this is a possible story within the context of of exalted and realm politics it seemed to be a story that was so large i don't know how one could ever play it which the the war for the west yeah interesting yeah it's i don't know how like so i'm a mage fan and pre and, and preset things for that are notoriously hard especially when people have access to correspondence 3 and they're just like bleep in a different place now likewise whenever you write a star trek adventures game you have to do it knowing that people will likely have access to shuttlecraft and transporters right so to have an arc of a war in the west that is so large that the characters can influence it but this grand arc still occurs i have no idea how you dial that in this is me making a statement of ignorance, not a statement of incredulity. I think it's similar to what I have tried to do with the fall of Giara in having a big campaign of rebellion where the scope of the conflict is bigger than just where the characters are zoomed into. Mm-hmm. And that is playing out as the characters kind of put the spotlight on key events throughout it. So I, I, 
I think that's the approach. Okay. At least that's the approach that I take. The two things that Exalted doesn't seem to give a lot of information on to me are are that game of factions, the grand changing world, as well as generational games, which I feel like could also be very well suited in Exalted as you play out a family over centuries. That is not a diss. That is a adding that would add so much material. That would be a nice to have. I don't feel disappointed not having it though. Understood. Okay. And with that, I guess we've gone through the book. Do you have thoughts overall? Um, I really like this book. It continues to show the solid direction of the line in the hands of the new developers. Um, I really like the third edition take on stuff. I am a dragon-blooded stan, so I like all of the extra content here. I especially like the expanded look at cadet houses, um, the look at heaven's dragons, and the look, in-depth look at the War for the Throne. Um, those were all kind of key highlights for me. My, my biggest complaint I, I mentioned in the uh, Blood of the Dragons chapter is the, the art it feels very white for a setting that is not supposed to be. There is good art. There's also some where I, I don't necessarily like the style, um, and it seems to be the direction that the art style is going currently in the line. I don't know that I would say it's bad, uh, it just it doesn't hit my preferred art as consistently as what Fire Has Wrought did. So that that would be my my biggest gripe. What about your overall thoughts? Art wise, all of the chapter front pieces were generally large impressionistic works, um, which I didn't find too interesting. They kind of had this dreamy quality, which I do not associate with Exalted. Uh, the character art was good, but as you mentioned, was relatively unvaried in what was depicted. A lot more people seemingly with gray skin than any of any, any darker shades, and kind of had this kind of exaggerated cutness to all of them that was that was kind of new to me. It really highlighted the areas of the setting that make sense to me and the areas of the setting that don't. I still have difficulty understanding how the Scarlet Dynasty works. I have a better understanding of the people within it and their motives. I would have loved a big detailed map with all the new locations that were added, because it was one of those things where a place would say, this is east of Bloody Blah, and I would have to find Bloody Blah, and they're like, Bloody Blah is north of Bloody Blue, and I'm like, aha, Bloody Blue is in the map uh, is in the map that I got. So like, I would have to do this three-step process to figure out where something was located. Yeah, I'm hoping we'll get more detailed maps of each direction in across the eight directions. Yeah, it gave me respect for the sheer amount of shit that the Empress had to balance. If that makes sense, the absolute degree to which she was a canny political operator is something I now have better respect for. I had difficulty understanding the kind of constant state of conflict and warfare within the realm. It makes mentions to a lot of wars and campaigns that are happening, but it doesn't necessarily give a lot of details about them, especially when a dragon-blooded can stick around for a couple of centuries. So I, I feel like a chapter that had, hey, here are outstanding conflicts that are happening or have happened would have helped me. But again, to some extent, maybe the book's not for me in, in that in that regard. I have a book for you, Terry. Based on your, your lacking pieces, uh, it seems like the piece that fills a lot of those in is the realm, uh, the book The Realm, where it talks about the structure of the empire. It talks yeah. about the structure of the legions. It goes through a history of some of the major military campaigns when the different great houses were brought into the fold, the evolution of the power structures based on the empress's needs at the time. So when you talk about how does the dynasty work, that really fits into that book more than it gets presented here. And this kind of adds flourishes and embellishments to that. Yeah. Like I was saying at the top, this really is a, a third piece of a three-part picture. 
mm-hmm. and this is the the added details on top more than it is core material. But boy, howdy, the intro reference at the end was pure gold. Yes. If they had published that as a separate publication for two bucks on DriveThruRPG, I'm there for days, which makes me wonder if we should do that for Solars or something like that, a, a quick overview. But just a thought. I know the core book kind of has that introductory section that explains it, but this is a really good template, I think, to work off of. Uh, it is very much something if I were playing a dragon-blooded game, I would hand that out. Or uh, like Chaz, when you're trying to remember all of the terms for things in Look Shy, it, it also summarizes that conveniently. If you're like, what's the difference between a Sohi and a Chumyo? Uh, it, it's got all that there. Um, And compared to what I'm used to reading, it is well-written. There is a lot of stuff going on. You cannot say it does not give you stuff. Uh, I guess the closest thing I would have to a criticism is it does assume that you have very good retention for what has come in the books before it. A few more asides and reminders I would have certainly appreciated. Um, I have thumbed through bits of both the realm and what fire has wrought, but maybe I was just reading it wrong. So that that also goes in the nice to have, but I certainly wouldn't ding the book for it. So um, I'm going to introduce an arbitrary scale. I think you and I are both of the opinion that if you're playing Exalted and you're playing Dragon Bloods, get the damn book. It's pretty easy. Like there's the, the buy decision on that's really easy. So um, uh, on the Chaz, um, how well represented were birds in this book? How would you, <laughs> where would you put this on a zero to five scale? Um, there is a bird god who shows up in the Heaven's Dragon section in the art. So I'll, I'll give it a four, a four, four and a half. I'll, I'll, I would give this, this book a four and a half out of five. I thought it was very solid. And on the Terry Robinson scale of uh, weird ass shit you didn't know you wanted, I would give this a one or a two. Um, that's for me. There's a very high end to that scale. I, I very much appreciate that it it, it brought the, the the weird out, uh, especially above to me what fire has wrought um, in terms of of that weird stuff. And I, I look forward to future books. Probably many fresh strangers will just have have more kooky shot just because you're interfacing with like uh, the the border marches and such more. But I was I was glad to see that. So since you're listening to this on systematic understanding of everything, this is kind of a pre-announcement of our next project. We wanted to get this review out in a timely manner with the uh, public release of heirs of the shogunate and so we're putting this here but at the top of the show we called this pain in the dice so terry what is pain in the dice pain in the dice is an effort for you and i to categorize the fact that we are not just a fan of certain rpgs but a fan of rpgs in general um not necessarily all of them but we we frequently find that the current projects we are doing are focusing on the experience of one or two games and you and i wanted to talk and explore our our thoughts and engagement with a wider range of rpgs uh the other thing that we have found so far is that there seems to be a genuine interest in having more generic conversations about how to do things in games, what we find difficult, and how we cope with that table phenomenon. And Pain the Dice is our exploration of that. It will have a few core lines in terms that we plan on continuing to talk about Exalted. We plan on continuing to talk about Chronicles and Old World of Darkness, but also the other games that you and I are interested in, such as Powered by the Apocalypse games, uh, Forged in the Dark games, and things outside the remit of those otherwise popular systems. So uh, we also plan on including a mix of author and provider interviews, our thoughts about games, as well as a few other recurring segments such as live plays and a project uh, I talked about before called RPGnomics, where I discuss the the business and process of producing game media, which so far I am doing with Josh Heath. And I'm super glad to have just kind of an umbrella for all of those projects. And there seems to be a strong enough through line to justify keeping them together. So we are going to be creating a new feed for Pain in the Dice. Stay subscribed to Systematic Understanding of Everything, and we will add a release announcement here 
uh, when that goes live with this episode and with, with others right out the gate. Also, stay subscribed to Systematic Understanding of Everything, because I'm sure we'll be back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll find an excuse to talk to each other again. <laughs> with that, Terry, where can people find you? I'm at Terry Robinson on Twitter. And where can they find you, Chess? I am at Storytold Chess on Twitter. And until we talk next time, remember, games are hard, but we appreciate that you keep trying.